When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Well, I think Veterans Day is an excuse to celebrate war, essentially. Um, you know, I, as we saw this weekend during the games, um, I think we saw an unapologetic Orwellian propaganda, you know, on a scale large enough to make any North Korean dictator envious. Ultimately, I think what we saw is a, is a gross attempt to lure military-age kids who watch the NFL into our unending trillion-dollar wars. Welcome to the Edge of Sports podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week, we talk Veterans Day to former U.S. Army Ranger who served with Pat Tillman and member for Veterans for Peace, Rory Fanning. Rory is also the co-author of Craig Hodge's amazing autobiography, Long Shot, so he more than fits with us here at the intersection of sports and politics. Also, I've got some choice words about how the NFL handled Veterans Day this past Sunday. You're going to want to hear those. I've also got Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down Award, a very special Kaepernick watch, and a very special letter that I got from a reader about toxic masculinity that I want to share with you. It's special. You're going to want to hear it. But first, let's talk to Rory Fanning. So, Rory Fanning, thank you so much for joining us on the Edge of Sports podcast. Oh, thanks for having me on, Dave. So before we start, you've done some amazing writing about Veterans Day just as a concept and its tradition as Armistice Day. And I think a lot of folks don't know that history, they don't know that tradition, and they don't know what Veterans Day was actually supposed to be relative to what it's become. So can you speak a little bit about what Veterans Day was and what it now is? Sure. Um, in 1954, uh, during the height of the Cold War, uh, Congress replaced Armistice Day with Veterans Day. Armistice Day celebrated the end of World War I in 1918. Um, Armistice Day was intended to evoke memories of fear, suffering, and military incompetence. Um, those who had participated or would participate in war directly and indirectly. Um, it was a day that was supposed to help protect us from the lies that would lead us into future wars. Um, Kurt Vonnegut said Armistice Day was sacred. Veterans Day is not, and I agree with him. And so when Armistice Day would take place, would, would there be like peace celebrations, peace marches, peace rallies? Sure. They're huge. Wow. And so and what Veterans Day has become is something quite different. What role do you think Veterans Day plays uh, in 2017? Uh, well, I think Veterans Day is an excuse to celebrate war essentially. Um, you know, I, as we saw this weekend in, in during the games, um, I think we saw an unapologetic Orwellian propaganda, you know, on a scale large enough to make any North Korean dictator envious. Um, you know, ultimately, I think what we saw is a, is a gross attempt to lure military-age kids who watch the NFL into our unending trillion-dollar wars, wars that benefit a small percentage of the population at the expense of the rest of us. Mm. You know, I also... I also think it's an attempt to silence the huge number of veterans who are disgusted by what they saw and did overseas. 
You know, heroes is the NFL and the government obsessively label veterans. Don't steal other countries' natural resources or illegally throw governments or kill innocent people. Um, you know, some estimates say that a million or so people have been killed since 9-11 uh, around the world. You know, 80% of those people are innocent civilians. You know, and no. once you're labeled, yeah, so. No, 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 please continue, please. No, I, I think once you're labeled a hero, it's also hard to think twice about putting your weapons down. I think thank yous to heroes, you know, discourage dissent within the ranks. Now, I, I got to ask you this before I ask you a little bit more about NFL Sunday and what you thought about that. Um, these ideas that you just expressed, I think anybody would describe them as a radical critique of the U.S. Armed Forces. Were these ideas that you had when you were an Army Ranger? Were they already part of your consciousness? Did you develop them while you were enlisted, or did it happen afterwards? I signed up to help prevent another 9-11. Um, you know, I wanted to do my part to prevent something like that from ever happening again. And I saw that my actions in Afghanistan during two tours were only making the conditions uh, for more such attacks uh, more likely. So I started to think a little bit more critically about what I was doing in the military. So what do you think when you see like NFL Sunday? I mean, I've never seen it this over the top as this particular Veterans Day. And I have a theory about why that's the case. Um, I, I think it's, and I'm going to talk about this later in the show, but I think it has to do with the league's skittish response to the accusation that they are somehow unpatriotic because they haven't fired players because of their protests against racism. Is, is that in any way your read of this? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as you've pointed out in your writing, this has only been happening since 2009, first, first of all, um, when the NFL first began making these kind of gross patriotic displays, almost mandatory for its players. And also requiring um, that they be out before the anthem when before 2009 they were in the locker room. Exactly. You know, and I think the timing of all this alleged patriotism corresponds with plummeting support for the global war on terror. And I don't think that's coincidence. Now, you've also seen some of the players – uh, who have been the most active in taking a knee against racism or raising a fist against racism, take part in things like salute to service commercials and speaking out like really defensively that this is not anti-military. And I get that. They don't want people like Donald Trump to hijack what it is they're trying to do. But what's the danger in doing that as well? Well, I think if you're not connecting the 1,200 police killings every year, you know, the racist prison industrial complex and the hyper-militarized police departments we see all over the country to our unending trillion-dollar wars, then the movement isn't going to get very far. You know, Dr. King warned us of the evil triplets, racism, extreme materialism, and uh, extreme materialism and militarism. You know, he saw how these were all connected and remind us of the importance of connecting these struggles. And ultimately, I think he sacrificed his life trying to convey this message. Um, you know, I look forward to the day that our movements can pick up where he left off. You know, personally, I wish Nate Boyer, the former Seahawk and Green Beret, never stuck his nose into this protest. I think sitting instead of kneeling connects more with Dr. King's message and with all those who sacrifice their lives fighting for freedom and democracy in this country's history. Now, you mentioned Nate Boyer. He put out an essay this week where he called upon Colin Kaepernick to meet with Donald Trump for the good of the nation. There's so many problems with that formulation, aren't there? Yeah, he kind of he seems to think there's like a middle ground in the fight against racism and uh, exploitation and oppression. I think he's completely missing the message. And uh, this, is, this is not really a kumbaya mo moment as he's trying to make it. 
Um, and isn't it also like like not only that he puts the onus on Colin Kaepernick to do it as opposed to Donald Trump, doesn't right. it also completely misread like who Donald Trump is and who he caters towards? Yeah, I, I chatted with Nate Boyer um, at a CNN interview, and I just think he's he's living in a bit of a he's living in a bit of a la la land, and uh, I think he'd you know do much more good if he just kind of figured out exactly what Colin Kaepernick is trying to accomplish and kept his nose out of it. Now, one of the other things that was a big part of yesterday's uh, NFL veteran celebration, if you will, was that they paid fulsome tribute to Pat Tillman. Uh, I don't know if you got to see any of it, but what, what are your thoughts either from Sunday or how you've seen it the way the NFL's done it in the past in terms of how they tell the Pat Tillman story? Yeah, I think it's revisionist history and a clear insult to his family who have gone on the record saying they didn't want Pat's name used for propaganda purposes. You know, I say it's revisionist history because Pat himself never wanted to be a poster boy for the war on terror. He went to great lengths not to publicly discuss his military service. You know, the attention also, you know, seems to sweep the cover-up of his death under the rug. I mean, let's not forget that Pat didn't die in an enemy ambush. He died because of the incompetence of generals and politicians who put him in Afghanistan in the first place. And let's also not forget that the death was covered up at the highest levels of the government. You know, I think a real tribute to Pat would be to hold those who lied about his death accountable, people like General Stanley McChrystal, Donald Rumsfeld, and George Bush. Mm. And who, just for our, for our audience, um, who is the Pat Tillman you knew? Who is the Pat Tillman you served with? I know you've spoken about this a great deal in the past, but I would love for our audience to hear it. Uh you know, Pat was a critical thinker, uh, someone who listened more than he talked, but mostly he was someone who stood with those who stood on principle. And I was one of the first Army Rangers to become a war resistor after 9-11. You know, Pat and Kevin were the only two people, Pat and his brother Kevin were the only two people in the entire regiment who stood by me and respected my decision. Uh, I have nothing but respect for Pat. Now, I got I to gotta ask you this, like, because it's like here, here they are talking about Tillman. We see NFL players fighting racism, very defensive about the idea that anything they're saying or doing could be seen as unpatriotic. How much are we paying the price for the absence of an anti-war movement in this country right now? You know, I think a vibrant anti-war movement would hold these opportunistic owners, you know, in the Pentagon that helps fund them accountable. Uh, you know, wouldn't it be great if there are 100,000 people outside these stadiums protesting the racism and militarism that is being pushed down our throats? You know, I think the owners would look like the frauds that they are if this was the case, and they would be far less likely to pull these these stunts that I think basically piss on everything Pat stood for. And, and there's this other part of it, too, that— this past year, and I, I'm going to talk about this later, but this past year, the, the, the armed forces had record numbers of sexual assault complaints levied by female soldiers. There was that chilling poll that I'm sure you saw about the presence of Nazis in the ranks of soldiers and how soldiers themselves said they felt like that that was a more pressing concern than, than ISIS was the presence of Nazis in their own ranks. I mean, that's, that's really stunning. And so, like, w what's the cost we pay when we look – at an armed forces that, you know, independent of foreign policy is rife with its own problems and does not serve vets. I mean, we could talk about veterans' health care. Like, like what, what price do we pay when we look at the armed forces as this kind of homogenous force of good? Well, I, I think we, we, we ignore that at our own peril. You know, at the, uh, um, at the uh, expense of democracy, I think 
You know, if the military, you know, right now the military has conducted military operations in 49 of the 54 African countries. You know, none of, no one is paying attention to any of that. You know, that's since 2011 alone. You know, to say nothing about the seven countries we've bombed in the last two years, you know. Um, you know, if, we're, if we don't have a hypercritical eye on this military, it seems like the far right wants to criticize everything else the government does except the military, which I find is ironic, considering this is like the, the greatest expenditure and uh, uh, has the capacity to do the most harm around the world. Um, uh, unless, and, of course, it's the widow, uh, unless, of course, it's the black widow of a soldier who died under very mysterious circumstances in Niger. Then somehow it's exactly. okay to bash the military as long as it's this this woman who's you know, tr- trying to put her life together right now. Yeah, or any veteran who wants to speak out about about what they're saying. You know, right. wouldn't it be great if we if we dedicated maybe twenty minutes during halftime to hearing some of the the stories that you know veterans are coming back with from around the world? You know, there is no space, you know, to speak critically about the military. And that's scary because it has an authoritarian overtone. Exactly. Yeah. So I'd be remiss uh, because this is a sports and politics show. Uh, Rory, if I didn't ask you real quick about something completely or maybe not completely separate from this, and that's your work with Craig Hodges, a total hero of us on this show as we celebrate rebel athletes and athlete activists. You were the co-author of Craig Hodges' amazing book, Long Shot. Uh, what's been the experience like working with Craig? Craig's a true freedom fighter. You know, he put his money where his mouth is and he paid the price. You know, when so many people are calling out Colin Kaepernick for being spoiled or being someone who didn't appreciate everything that was given to him, you know, he's sacrificing everything. And Craig showed me that. Um, he's and Craig and Colin Kaepernick, like Craig, has sacrificed his career. You know, he's unemployed now um, because he stood up for what he believed in. And I think people like Craig Hodges and Colin Kaepernick have much more in common with those who thought they were dying for freedom and democracy uh, in this country's history than those who try to repress their dissent and jeer from sidelines. Mm. His name is Rory Fanning. Rory, before I let you go, something I ask all my guests is we like knowing what music you're listening to. What, 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 what are you listening to these days that puts you in a fighting mood? Oh, let's see here. Um, I was listening to Johnny Cash, Ghost Riders in the Sky, uh, on the way over today. Um, I like uh, War on Drugs, um, Built to Spill. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's it. Right on. His name is Rory Fanning, former U.S. Army Ranger, co-author of the book Long Shot. And, by the way, very incidentally to this, one of my sister's favorite people. So <laughs> well, you got that going for you. Oh, your sister's one of my favorite people, too. Oh, that's awesome. Just like you, wow. too. All right. Oh, well, thanks so much. Rory, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. All right, thanks for having me, Dave. Their faces gulped, their eyes were blurred, their shirts all soaked with sweat. He's riding hard to catch that hurt, but he ain't caught him yet. And now it's time for some choice words about how the NFL handled Veterans Day this past Sunday. Okay, look, 
NFL public relations flack Brian McCarthy put the word out 16 minutes before kickoff. He tweeted, NFL teams will hold moments of silence today before the national anthem to salute our veterans and active duty service members for their service and sacrifice, end quote. Now, on this Veterans Day weekend, this salute also included team personnel wearing camouflage, players with Army Green sideline gear emblazoned with American flags, available for purchase online courtesy of Nike, Armed Forces vets leading teams out of the tunnel onto the field, and network halftime specials staged at military bases. Now, little of this was done out of the goodness of the NFL's heart, and it wasn't only because of the league's commercial partnership with the Department of Defense. This held the overpowering stench of damage control. The unprecedented player protests against racism staged during the anthem have led to an ugly backlash led by Donald Trump in his right-wing echo chamber. They have attempted, of course, to reframe these protests as somehow against the flag, the anthem, or the military itself. Now, even though this is a lie, and even though public sentiment has shifted towards the players, according to polls, this Sunday was the NFL's skittish response, and they laid it on so thick one wouldn't have been surprised to have seen the players take the field in Kevlar. Now, it's not just the NFL as a corporate entity that was playing defense. Players fighting the slander that their protest aims are anti-military have gone out of their way to write, post, and speak about their own family members in the armed forces. Several of the most prominent athletes protesting racism were even featured in an NFL-produced Salute to Service ad. This is clearly a coordinated and understandable joint effort between the NFL and these players to head off this line of attack. One player said to me, we're not against the flag or the troops, but we have to make that clear as a form of protection. People will kill you in this country if they think you're against the flag. End quote. Yet the NFL and protesting players are giving ground to a frightening and authoritarian idea articulated on Twitter by ESPN journalist Howard Bryant. He tweeted, Protesting police brutality has nothing to do with the United States Armed Forces. You don't need their blessing or permission to demonstrate. Ever. End quote. Howard is absolutely correct, but that's not the only problem with this defensive posture. It also implicitly puts the military in a sacred space, protected from even the thought of criticism. The mere idea of an athlete protesting the aims of the armed forces is now spoken about as if it's the third rail of political dissent, and it's practically unimaginable in the current climate. But confronting militarism is part of the very tradition of athlete activists often cited by these NFL protesters and their defenders. Muhammad Ali always connected the fight against racism at home with the racism that allowed the prosecution of the Vietnam War, saying, why should they ask me to put on a uniform and go 10,000 miles from home and drop bombs and bullets on brown people in Vietnam while so-called Negro people in Louisville are treated like dogs and denied simple human rights? No, I'm not going 10,000 miles from home to help murder and burn another poor nation simply to continue the domination of the white slave masters of the darker people the world over. End quote. Muhammad Ali also, in five words, etched in stone that connection between racism at home and abroad when he said of the Vietnamese people, they never called me the N-word. We don't even have to go that far in the past. NBA player Mahmoud Abdul Raouf's 1996 silent protests during the anthem were inspired by learning about U.S. foreign policy and the undemocratic installation of dictators in Latin America and the Middle East. 
It's why he said that he believed that the flag was, quote, a symbol of freedom and democracy for some and a symbol of oppression and tyranny to others. Then after 9-11, as the first year of our never-ending war in Afghanistan was underway, Toronto Blue Jay Carlos Delgado rejected the idea of coming onto the steps for a second national anthem instituted by Major League Baseball, which was God Bless America. Delgado said, I never stay outside for God Bless America. I don't stand because I don't believe it's right. I don't believe in the war. It's a very terrible thing that happened on September 11th. It's also a terrible thing that happened in Afghanistan and Iraq. I just feel so sad for the families that lost relatives and loved ones in the war, but I think it's the stupidest war ever, end quote. And it wasn't just Delgado. NBA players Atan Thomas, Steve Nash, Josh Howard, and NFL players Adelius Thomas and Scott Fajita also spoke out against the war. Even the person that the NFL holds up as their ironclad connection to the military, the late Pat Tillman, raised his voice posthumously against the war in Iraq, saying that he believed it to be, quote-unquote, fucking illegal. He was also killed in Afghanistan under circumstances that still hold unanswered questions by his family. The League did not speak about this part of Tillman's history when they honored him on Sunday. The military is not a sacred cow and never can be, not just for the sake of democratic norms and not just for the sake of those around the world living beneath the ever-expanding U.S. military footprint, but also for the sake of those who serve. There is a pressing need to support decent health care for vets. There is a need to stand with female troops who this year issued a record number of sexual assault complaints. There is a need to aid those blowing the whistle on racism in the ranks. This year, a poll of troops said that one in four had witnessed fellow troops take part in quote-unquote white nationalism, end quote. This is terrifying. The NFL propaganda machine hides this reality and turns Veterans Day away from the needs of the actual living, breathing troops and into a celebration of the branches of the armed forces, the brass, the Department of Defense, and by extension, war itself. Players have every right to demand that Trump and the media be honest about what they are protesting and not protesting. They are fighting racism, not the anthem, the flag, the military, or whatever lies Fox News is manufacturing this week. That doesn't mean at all that they need to beg deference from those very armed forces, not to mention a draft-dodging president, right-wing radio hosts, or anonymous Twitter trolls. It won't protect them from criticism and will only embolden those from the ownership box to the racist fringe who want them to just shut up and play. Submitting to this also cuts them off from many people and many vets inspired by their stance against racism and also repelled by the endless militarized nationalism on NFL Sunday. Now is not the time for timidity or silence. It's worth remembering Muhammad Ali's words. A rooster crows only when it sees the light. Put him in the dark and he'll never crow. I have seen the light, and I'm crowing. And now a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, the great people at The Nation magazine. Okay, look, for 150 years, The Nation magazine has given you the best in unembedded journalism. They produce some amazing, amazing coverage of issues ranging from Bob Mueller's impeachment proceedings and what that could mean to grassroots stories about schools and segregation. It really is a remarkable publication. It's putting out media that nobody else is doing and media that's absolutely critical for navigating these difficult times. And also, I do have to say, if you go to thenation.com slash subscribe, and for a very, very small amount of money, 
actually subscribe to the nation not only do you have access to tons more articles but you support the continuation of this podcast so go to the nation.com slash subscribe and enjoy what is offered and now back to the edge of sports podcast and now it's time for the part of the show we call just stand up and just sit your ass down the just stand up and just sit your ass down awards the Just Stand Up Award Stand up. goes to Allie Raceman. Allie Raceman, the six-time Olympic medalist who went public on 60 Minutes, that she was sexually abused by Larry Nasser, a former physician for the U.S. women's gymnastics team for nearly two decades. Now Allie Raceman has joined her former teammate, Michaela Maroney, and she is one of 140 people who have done so in terms of telling the truth about Larry Nasser. Here's what Allie Raceman said on 60 Minutes. Why are we looking at, why didn't the girls speak up? Why not look at, what about the culture? What did USA Gymnastics do and Larry Nasser do to manipulate these girls so much that they are so afraid to speak up? Allie Raceman, Just Stand Up Award for you. Thank you so much for going public, for being inspired by the Me Too movement, and for lending your voice. The Just Sit Your Ass Down Award. Sit your ass down goes to Senator Pat Toomey from the state of Pennsylvania. Pat Toomey was asked if he believed the women who have come forward against Roy Moore, the Republican senatorial candidate in Alabama, and child molester Roy Moore. This is what Pat Toomey said, quote, It raises a question about the credibility when someone waits for 40 years, that raises the credibility of the accusation itself, end quote. Gee, Senator Toomey, let's go through this one, two, three. One, when people ask why don't more people come forward, maybe it has something to do with responses like that where you immediately attack their credibility. Two, it is not surprising at all that someone would wait 40 years to come forward. Shoot, I've known so many people who have said to me over the last week, If my assaulter, if my abuser was running for public office, you better believe I would come forward. And also, maybe the people who are coming forward against Roy Moore are inspired by this world historic outpouring of testimonials as part of the Me Too movement. So why is she coming forward now? Because there is a movement of people coming forward right now. That is not hard to understand unless you're Pat Toomey and you're equivocating on Pedophilia. And then lastly, Senator Toomey, think for a second about your state in Pennsylvania. Think for a second about the Second Mile Foundation, the quote-unquote youth charity run by Jerry Sandusky. Think about the incredible number of children who were abused and assaulted by Jerry Sandusky and his family. Think about the fact that you are connected to people who are on the board of Second Mile. Think about the fact that there were so many whispers in Pennsylvania about Sandusky and you chose to do nothing. If I was Pat Toomey, I would be spending the rest of my life trying to make amends for my inaction around Jerry Sandusky. But he has learned nothing. Instead, he is just going after people who are attempting to make their voices heard. So Pat Toomey, sit your ass down. And now it's time for the part of the show this week we call Kaepernick Watch about the latest news regarding Colin Kaepernick. Still not signed, but he is the citizen of the year for GQ magazine. A lot of right-wing white people. Very mad. 
But I got to tell you, it's kind of a beautiful issue. It's got all these pictures of Kaepernick, like, in the streets with people, doing his thing. And what they did was they interviewed 10 people in his life. And Ava DuVernay, the terrific filmmaker who did Selma, who's a friend of Kaepernick, she had this great line where she said, I see what he's done as art because I believe that art is seeing the world that doesn't exist. End quote. Damn. Thank you, Ava DuVernay. Thank you, GQ Magazine. And thank you, Colin Kaepernick. It's really a beautiful, beautiful issue. People should check it out. And now a quick word from the second best podcast. Of course, I'm talking about Start Making Sense with John Wiener. If you like Edge of Sports, you got to check out Start Making Sense from The Nation magazine. It's progressive news without the boring parts. Every week, host John Wiener takes a step back from the daily media deluge to talk to some really smart people. People like Naomi Klein on climate change or Keith Ellison on a strategy for the Democratic Party. And he's even had me on the show to talk about sports and politics. Catch a new episode of Start Making Sense every Thursday at thenation.com, on iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And now a special segment of the show. I want to read a letter I received from a listener, Dan Miller, who's the organizing director of the union Unite Here Local One. This is what Dan Miller wrote. Dear Dave, the ravages of toxic masculinity are now on full display. So is an unprecedented level of fighting against it, and we should be at the forefront of this fight back. I'm the father of boys ages 11 and 7. This moment is pushing me to try and raise them into men who reject toxic masculinity, not to mention motivation to overcome my own struggles with it. But to borrow a question that's been floating around a lot lately, what are we for? If we're against toxic masculinity, what type of masculinity are we after? Is that even the right question? I don't want to raise my boys only in opposition to something, but to strive for a vision of what it means to be a good person and a good man. If you're like me and came up in the jock culture, you might have had a father that taught you that boys don't cry or talk about their feelings, a coach that yelled at your team to take off your skirts and toughen up, friends who called you a sissy for taking piano lessons, or FAG when you did something not considered manly. You may have been bullied and or bullied others. Even if you weren't in the jock culture, this may have happened to you or worse. Maybe you were physically or sexually abused. If you were, chances are overwhelming that it was another man who did it to you, if you get my point. Maybe you endured some or all of these things and were able to overcome them and grow into a man who doesn't give a shit about traditional masculinity and are living your truth, to which I say, you go. Maybe you still harbor the pain and are subjecting others to it, probably somewhere in between if you're like me. There seems to be less bullying masculinity in my son's peer culture than there was in mine, a result of the success of the women's and gay rights movement, I believe. But we're still raising too many boys who become harassers and abusers, and too few who stand up to their peers to make this socially unacceptable. Lord knows I've failed to call it out more times than I'd like to admit, and it's an emergency that's harming the women we love. I like to smoke cigars, watch football, lift weights, wrestle with my sons, drink beer with the guys, and countless other manly activities. I also like to prance around the house in my underwear, belting out show tunes. But these are just things I like to do. Sometimes I lash out in anger when I'm actually feeling shame, sadness, fear, or hurt because vulnerability isn't manly. Sometimes I interrupt women co-workers in meetings and get called out. But I do more housework in a week than I saw my dad do in a year, and I'll bet you do too. 
I'm into how strong my wife is and want to support her in achieving her goals. I hug and kiss my sons every day and tell them I love them. I try to be in touch with my feelings, and I've been to therapy to talk about them, and I credit feminism for all of that. But is there anything positive to be salvaged from traditional masculinity? My dad may have modeled not crying, but he also taught me a man keeps his word and is always there for those who rely on him. He was accepting of his lesbian sister when I was growing up in the 80s, and I learned by watching. Do we need to label traits and teachings masculine and feminine? Shouldn't we go beyond that? Is no masculinity the opposite of toxic masculinity? There's nothing especially male about integrity or reliability, for instance, but I'm a man, so that's part of how I understand it, and watching my dad display these pro-social traits was important somehow. Can I raise my boys to live their truth, spread love and positivity, solidarity and caring, and stand for justice? Maybe one or both is queer. In that case, they need to know their straight dad is proud of their courage to be who they are. But let's assume they're straight, as is most likely the case statistically. Then they'll be like me, straight white men. I like who I am, and I want them to like who they are. Maybe they'll be straight men who don't connect with traditional masculinity. I remember the light bulb that went off at 12 years old when I would sneak up late to watch Saturday Night Live. The Lyle the effeminate heterosexual skit was the first time I realized that wanting to sleep with only women is what made you straight and nothing else. Watching it now might be cringe-inducing, but then it was an important insight. My hope is that my boys become men who are confident enough in their masculinity, however they live it, that they're not threatened by the power of women, LGBTQ people, or people of color. That they learn from what the experiences of trans and gender queer people teach us about gender. That they stand for love and caring and against harassment and abuse. Not just that they don't harass and abuse, but they actively call it out. That they respect the women they are friends with and the women they sleep with. And that they have fun. Can we please remember not to forget about the fun when we talk about sex? What is that called? Healthy masculinity? Positive masculinity? Loving masculinity? Humanity? What do you think? Someone may have already come up with a good phrase and definition, and if so, please share. Dan Miller, Organizing Director, Unite Here Local One. You know, Dan, I have no answers to this. I like the idea of just calling it humanity, for goodness sakes. And I think we're going to figure out what the phrases are as this movement develops. It's pretty rare that the phraseology comes before the struggle. So let's see what this struggle brings, and I guarantee you it'll bring a new way to also speak about the incredibly important issues that you raise. Thank you so much for writing us at Edge of Sports. And anybody can, always email me at edgeofsports at gmail.com. Thank you so much to everybody uh, who helped make this show possible this week. Thank you so much to Rory Fanning for joining us. Thank you to my primary producer this week, David Tigabu, and for Dan Baker for helping out on the production end. If anybody wants to contact me, Dave Zirin, you can always reach me at edgesports at gmail.com or call 401-426-3343. And, yo, we've got some exciting news coming up. People should keep an eye out for a Patreon page. Uh, that we're going to do because we want to actually support even doing more work with this podcast. We want to expand it because of everything that's happening in the world. Keep an eye out for that. And the last thing I want to say is I really just want to thank all our listeners out there. Thank you for putting the comments on the iTunes page. Thank you for putting the comments on the Stitcher page. All of that stuff makes a huge difference for us. Please tell a friend about the podcast. Please be one of the people who lets more folks in on what it is we're doing. Please stay frosty as well. We are out of here. Peace.